This is Nehemiah speaking. Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from, from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commands, commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of, the, of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. So I, it's kind of been interesting that kind of the things that have been already shared today. Because what I wanted to, want us to think about a little bit this morning is what is our response when distress comes? One, is there anybody in this room that has not had distress? Please raise your hands high because we're going to have you come up and pray for us. We all have had distress. If you're going to breathe and be a human being, you are going to walk through seasons of distress. It's just, it's part of life. It's part of things that happen. So here, Nehemiah, uh, Israel has been taken into Babylon in captivity. There was a portion of those that did not, he, here Nehemiah says they escaped. However it worked out, whether they fleed ahead of time and stayed out in the country to after the captors have ta had taken everyone else. We don't really, uh, I don't remember at the moment, but um, there is this remnant that's living in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem at this point has been totally burnt. He, Nehemiah references that the gates have been burnt. The city was burnt. The walls were caved in. When Babylon wanted you gone, you were gone. Uh, you know, sometimes we, we, in today's world, you know, we, we think of discomfort in, in uh, you know, 
my taxes went up 2%. In the world these guys lived in, when an invading army came in and was victorious, they did whatever they wanted to whoever they wanted for as long as it was convenient to do it. There was no appeal. There was no court you could go to. There was no, can we meet in the town square and talk this through? They did what they wanted to do because they were victorious. And so Nehemiah, this report from Hanani comes and, and he begins to tell him, the people are in great distress that are there. And when even the, the gates of Jerusalem have been burnt. And in that moment, Nehemiah then, uh, you know, begins to pray. So my, my first question is, you know, where do we turn when the report leaves us in distress? What's my first response in distress? Do I call all my friends and just say, oh, you won't believe what just happened to me. It's terrible. I don't know what's going to happen. Do I, do, I, do I actually amplify the distress? Or do I turn to those that I care to blame for the distress, whether deserving or undeserving? And do I then just put all my distress directed towards them? If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be in this mess. Where do I turn? The second question is, how do I handle distress when I know I've played a part in the creation of the problem? I won't ask for a show of hands because I know you guys aren't in this category. I have created more stress in my life. I don't even need you. I can do it all by myself, left completely alone on a good sunny day with my belly full. For me, at least, it just comes naturally. So how, what do I do with the distress? Like I just shared, when we were in, in probably the lowest point of our financial history, what do you do with the distress that you know you created. When I looked at mismanaged credit cards, when I looked at debt, when I looked at wants that could not be fulfilled, let me, let me rephrase that. When I looked at needs that could not be fulfilled because of wants that were fulfilled, I was like, each morning, I just got to look at the problem in the mirror. So what do, you, what do we do when I realize I'm not innocent in this thing? I played a huge part in the problems I'm now dealing with. What do I do with that? Do I just, you know, call the doctor and say, I think I need meds? Preferably strong, preferably the ones that I only wake up for two hours out of the day. Because the longer I'm awake, the more problems I'm creating. I need to sleep. Maybe Rip Van Winkle type sleep. That's not been banned yet, has it? 
what do I do? So let's, let's look at verse, verses 6 and 7. This is, so Nehemiah gets the report, and this is Nehemiah's response. Uh, I'll start with 5. So he said, as soon as I heard all this, I began to pray, I began to weep, I began to mourn, and I started fasting. And I started praying. And he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. I would submit to us that when distress comes, the first thing I need to do is turn my heart towards the Lord and begin to cry out, even if I don't know what to cry out about yet. Lord, I want to align my heart in prayer with you because you're the only answer I have. If something's going to change, it's going to change by your providential hand. And I trust your providential hand. And I'm going to align my heart there. Because many times when distress first comes, we're off balance. It feels like things are swirling around us. And oftentimes, in those moments of distress, things build upon things. So what started at 9 o'clock as a minor issue, by 3.30 in the afternoon, all hell is broke loose. And I'm still the only one in the room. Because I've aligned my heart internally with me, which sets everything in a circle motion, a circular motion, instead of saying, God, I'm crying out to you. I'm just going to cry out to you. I don't know how long I'm going to do it. I don't know what it's going to take to do it. I don't even know the words to put to it. And when you don't, if you pray in tongues, then it's a great time to pray in tongues. This may sound odd, but one of the things that I've done more than once when I've been in this situation is I go in the master bed bathroom of our house and I, we have two sinks, two mirrors. I know which one is mine. And I, I, I go to mine. Well, the other one has all kinds of like electrical stuff. Like in the sink, around the sink, hanging off the sink. I don't know what it is, but electrical stuff in a sink makes me nervous. On my side, there's a toothbrush and a bar of soap. Neither one are electrical. I think I can handle that. But so I know my sink. So I go to my sink and I look in the mirror and I start speaking in tongues to the person I'm looking at. And I just do that until I see the expression in the person I'm looking at change. You can all do what you want. That works for me. It may make me a tad odd, but it works for me. 
I need to see me change. And I know, I know the power of God because he's come every time and he's changed me because he's good. So the first thing Nehemiah does, he aligns his heart and begins to cry out to God. The second thing he does, he, he owns his own stuff. This is probably the most difficult part of the whole distress process. Is owning your own stuff. If you don't think you have stuff, then you're stuff deceived. Because you got stuff. And here's just a tad of a hint. God is not afraid of your stuff. And God knows how to bring your stuff out. When he brings your stuff out, our first response usually is, I don't want to look at it, so I'm going to run away. When God's saying, no, I want you to stand and look at it. The way through our stuff is brutal honesty. Don't hide anything. Don't minimize anything. Don't project anything. My stuff is nobody else's fault. I don't care what my parents did or anybody else. My stuff is there because I let it be there. I massaged it while it was there. I built a room for it. I gave it names. I played with it when it was convenient. I hid it when it was embarrassing. I did all those things, my stuff. And the whole time I was doing this with my stuff, Jesus is standing right in front of me saying, but I came to give you abundant life. Why do you want your stuff? I'm actually willing to do the great exchange. You give me your stuff. I give you me. But you'll look different. But I'm still looking in the mirror going, I like the man with stuff. I know him. Him without stuff? I don't know. Will I still exist without stuff? Will I still be called Robert? I I don't know because I've never been there. And he's saying, well, let's go. Let's go. Years ago, I was at, um, in a sozo, and I had it with Teresa Leipzig. It was one of the first sozos I ever had. It was amazing. And at the end of the sozo, for those of you that are going, what the heck's he talking about, sozo? I'll exp- come to me afterwards, I'll explain it. Um, it's something we do here. It's, it's a ministry of the house. But in, my, in this sozo, at the end, a lot of stuff had happened. I'm a total mess. I had been snotting for like an hour. 
And at the end of this thing, Jesus, I was on a horse, which for me at the time was funny. My wife rides horses. I stand alongside horses. I can ride. It's not, I'm not afraid of horses, but I, I'm not a rider, really. So I'm on this horse, and the horse is dressed like in, you know how like when the king is coming in, the whole horse, I mean, the horse is fully dressed out when the king or the queen sits on that horse. That horse was dressed out like that. Wow, this is amazing. And I'm sitting there looking at the horse, and next thing I know, Jesus is on a horse, and he's right beside me. And his horse was brilliant. It, it wasn't dressed like mine. It was just brilliant. So the two of us start riding. So we go across some fields, and now we're on this road, and we're, we're riding this dirt road. And at a certain point, we both get off the horse, and now we're just walking. And we walk up this dirt road, and it's kind of rising up. There's a field on the left, and there's woods on the left, or there's woods on the left and a field on the right, and this road goes up towards the, towards the summit. And we're walking up the road, and as at a certain point, there's an opening in the hedge on the left, and Jesus looks at me and says, well, this is where you go through. And when I walked through, like the opening in the hedge, it was the most, I can't even describe it, it was the most spectacular place I've ever been in my life. And when I, when I turned around, he was gone. But I knew instinctively that he wasn't gone. He was here. And this place he had just taken me to was beyond my wildest imagination. There was people, there was, it was just amazing. So that was my first, first experience on the Sozo. So years later, some people who were coming to the church at the time and invited Linda and I to dinner when we get to their house, we go in, and she seated, you know, she seated us at the, at the dining room table. And when I sit at the dining room table, I look up, and there's this picture on the wall. And that's where I had been. The field, the road, the hedge, not the opening. Right? But it was exactly, exactly what I had seen in that sozo. And I turned to Patricia, the, per the person that we were having dinner with, and I said, where did you get that picture? And she says, oh, this some famous French artist, as you know, this is like, in, hang this is a replica, of course, it hangs in museums in France. Seriously. I said, I know where that road goes. And then I went ahead and told her the story I just told you. Um, I would have really liked in that moment if she had went, well, here, that's so special, you can have the picture. She didn't do that, nor was there any prophetic words in 2021, is she going to do that? But I know that picture, and I know that and she filled me in on the artist that painted it. So we begin by being as brutally honest in our assessment of ourselves. Now, oftentimes we, when we do that, we do it in a condemning way. When the Spirit of God comes, he does not bring condemnation. He does not bring shame. He brings revelation and enlightenment 
so that I can shift from where I am to where he wants me to be. So being brutally honest, if, if you're building a case of guilt, you're in the wrong book. Because as he brings revelation and enlightenment to our stuff, the goal is, now give me that piece, and there's an exchange. Now give me this piece, and there's an exchange. Now give me this piece, and there's an exchange. Because he's taking it away. He's liberating us. Christus Victor is, <laughs> is alive inside and he's taken no prisoners. That two-edged sword is sharp. It knows exactly where to sever something I don't need. And it does it in such a fine way that it's healed the moment it's removed. So the first thing I do, I begin to repent. And I deal with I deal in repentance honestly. You know, there's 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 a general thinking that's in the atmosphere that, you know, I'm everything I ever need to be in Christ, therefore I don't need to look at any of this, I don't have to think about any of that, it's all done, forgiveness has come, it's so I just go on and I just I just go on. I have not found that to be true in the scriptures. I've not found that to be true in life experience. The cleansing that the cross provides is not just a non-involvement cleansing. We're invited to participate. So sometimes the messes I've created in his great grace He got me out of it better than I should have been. And in other times, he's walked with me through it and brought me through the other side still better than it probably should have been. But some stuff I've had to work on and some stuff moved quickly. Both are true. And I'm not smart enough to know which one it's going to be. So I just go with it however it is. So the second thing that he does in verse 9, so first there's repentance, there's there's just being that, that place where we're very honest with ourselves and what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our minds. We're turning that towards the Lord. We're crying out to him. We're giving that to him. And yes, fasting is still in vogue. still a good thing. It's not works. It's not twisting God's arm. It's a good spiritual discipline. So fasting can come in. Then verse 9. I then shift my heart. So Nehemiah goes on. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. (laughs) 
They are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. There's, there's, there's this place, and I, I can't say that I fully understand this. I practice it. I can tell you in my, in my journey, it, it's proved itself you know, enough that it's settled in me. There is this place where I begin to remind God of his position towards me, not because he's forgotten, but because I need to be reminded. And in me reminding him, it, it again shifts something in me. If I, begin, if I begin to remind him of the things that he's promised, then what that does, it starts to release in me this place of faith again, and it stirs up what I know. So in 2019, the prophetic word didn't happen as you had thought. But in a very short period of time, in 2021, it was completed. But we don't lose hope in between. I keep reminding him. Now, this isn't begging, it's not pleading, it's not arm twisting. It's just reminding, God, I am yours. You are in covenant with me. You have made, you have laid your life down for me. Your blood is sufficient for me. The stripes that you took are sufficient for me. God, in all things, I'm sufficient in you. So I wait on you and I trust you. I don't build a case against you. I don't pick up a fence against you. I don't even pick up a car against you. I don't build anything against you. Instead, I continually set myself before you. God, you are my God. If you're not in this thing, I'm in deep trouble. But I'm not alone. I'm not in alone when my emotions tell me I'm alone. I'm not alone when my circumstances tell me I'm alone. I'm not alone when I stand in front of the furnace and look at the one that's about to throw me in and go, just to be clear, if you chuck me in and I burn up, he's still God. If I walk out of this thing, he's still God. His position hasn't changed at all. But you can chuck me if you want. But it really doesn't have any bearing on who he is and what he's doing on the planet. And then in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, um, the, this man is the king of Babylon. So first, Distress comes, I have to set my heart towards the Lord in distress. 
Second distress comes, I have to then, okay, God, what part am I playing in this? I'm going to be brutally honest. I'm going to enter into repentance. I'm going to stay in this thing until you give me the green light to take the next step. Because I don't know. Will that be a day, a week, a month? I don't know. And various things in my life have taken various amounts of time. But I set my heart, and now I'm going to begin to, to pray, and I'm going to begin to confess, and I'm going to begin to open my heart and say, so cleanse me, Lord, just cleanse me. And then I come to this place where now I'm reminding God, this is who you are. And you've brought me into you. You've made me a part of you. So if this is who you are, this is now who I am. So in my circumstances, this is who you are. This is who you are. And then the, the fourth place is then we begin to say, in the distress, give me victory. Give me victory. I don't know what that's going to look like. Give me victory. And then there's this little sentence that he tags at the end, that Nehemiah tags at the end, when he says, you know, I want mercy in this man's sight. And he goes, now, I was the cupbearer of the king. I don't, maybe the, those that are doing the chosen need to work this out. I would love to see their storyline. This is how it, it appears to me. Exactly. <laughs> Nehemiah, in verse 11, he, he, he now begins to, to position himself to start to step into victory. And he's just finished this prayer, and then there's this little tag at the end. And you could read this different ways. The way I read it is Nehemiah goes, I'm the cupbearer of the king. I've been crying out for, for this thing to change. I am the change agent. I'm the cupbearer. I started in distress feeling like I'm a worm. I worked through all this stuff only to realize God had me right where he wanted me the whole time. He was positioning me for this moment to be the deliverer into this situation. I didn't even see it. I didn't understand it. If you told me a year ago this is what it was going to look like, I would have said, you're crazy. I'm the cupbearer. I'm positioned to win for his name's sake. I've spent all this time crying out and all of a sudden God's like, I haven't forgot my promises to you. I haven't forgot my covenant to you. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. But here's the news. Dude, I'm going to do it with you. And our first tendency is, uh, well, yeah, but. No, no buts. No buts. Get off your butt. I'm going to do it with you. When I look at you, I see the potential I put in you. When I look at you, I see the kingdom that I put in you. When I look at you, I see the Holy Spirit that I put in you. When I look at you, I see the grace and the mercy that I put in you that's flowing out of you. You're the cupbearer. I have given you a place of influence Amen. and you didn't even see it. Amen. Amen. Yes. I just think for Nehemiah, it was like this wake up moment. And if you read the rest of Nehemiah, 
He goes in, the king gives, I mean, the, the king gives him like carte blanche and sends money with him, even. I mean, he gets extreme favor, right? All right, one more thing, and then I'm going to stop. Turn to 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter one. Starting with verse three. Everything we could ever need for life and complete devotion to God has already been deposited in us by his divine power. For all this was lavished upon us through the rich experience of knowing him who has called us by name and invited us to come to him through a glorious manifestation of his goodness. He's calling you by name to step into this manifestation of his goodness. As a result of this, he has given you magnificent promises that are beyond all price. So that through the power of these tremendous promises, you can experience partnership with the divine nature. Huh. By which you have escaped the corrupt desires that are in the world. So devote yourselves to lavishly supplementing your faith. So lavishly supplementing. Lavishly. That's not small measure. Lavishly. Supplement. Your faith with goodness. And to goodness, add understanding. And to, and to understanding, add the strength of self-control. And to self-control, add patient endurance. And to patient endurance, add godliness. And to godliness, add mercy towards your brothers and sisters. And to mercy towards others, add unending love. Since these virtues are already planted deep within you, why do I need to repent? Why do I need to take myself to the mirror? Because the virtue that is deeply planted inside of me has got to get out. Amen. It's not out there somewhere and I got to go find it. It's already here. But it's got to get out. It's planted deep within you. And you possess them in abundant supply. None of us can say, well... Well, this is church, you know, in the 21st century. Church in the 18th century, we didn't have that, but people would snore. We were in, um, oh, shine. 
we were down in we were down in Virginia at uh, I can't it just escapes me um, Jamestown at Jamestown and at Jamestown there's a church that they built and it's made out of stone and when you go in the pews are stone first thing I thought was man it had to be hard going to church in the winter around here I don't think many people slept during service, sitting on a cold slab. I don't care how many coats you had on. It's already planted deep within you. You possess it in abundant supply. They will keep you from being inactive or fruitless in your pursuit of knowing Christ more intimately. But if anyone lacks these things, he is blind constantly closing his eyes to the mystery of our faith and forgetting his innocence. You know, when distress comes, a lot of times why it gets the foothold is because we forget our innocence. For his past sins have been washed away. For this reason, beloved ones, be eager to confirm and validate that God has invited you to salvation and claimed you as his own. If you do these things, you will never stumble. As a result, the kingdom's gates will open wide to you as God choreographs your triumphant entrance into the eternal kingdom. I can't imagine a more splendid picture than God choreographing your entrance. You know, just to walk in the room doesn't require a choreographer. When you choreograph something, that's a whole different event. Totally different. You know, probably probably the best picture that we get today of that is when there's a royal wedding in England. You know, we, we can look at that and minimize that or whatever, but for me, I am just awestruck. Because that event from start to finish is absolutely choreographed. And you know, the whole purpose of that is the bride. It's the bride. I often tell couples that when I, when I do premarital counseling or we're working towards, you know, I'm going to officiate the wedding. When I've had couples that kind of minimize the event, I don't want to just, you know, we're real nervous, so can you shorten it from 15 minutes? No. No, I really can't. But keep in mind, everything that's going to happen, the focal point, is the bride. You know, husband-to-be, stand up here, stand straight, and don't pass out. 
Your time is coming, but it ain't right now. It's her time. When she steps into the room, the room should be filled with her. And all eyes should be on her. When God choreographs your entrance, how much more is it going to be? How much more? I won't hesitate to continually remind you of these truths, even though you are aware of them and are well established in the present measure of truth that you have already embraced. And as long as I live, I will continue to awaken you with this reminder. Since our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One, has clearly revealed that my departure is near. Indeed, I am passionate to share these things with you so that you will always remember them after my exodus of this life. I will not hesitate to continually remind you. You can package it a lot of different ways, but I don't ever get tired of telling the same story. Because it's the power of life. It's the power of the resurrection. It's the power of Christ crucified, of Christ resurrected, of Christ ascended. It is the power of his bride, the church, on the earth, advancing his kingdom. It never gets old. Never gets old. And it will endure past all the naysayers, Ask all those that try to minimize it. Ask all those that try to explain it away. Every generation has had them. You can visit their graves if you can even find them. But the kingdom of God reigns forever.